Let's pray together as we come now to God's Word. Father, we thank you for the wonderful joy it is to be together as a family at Easter. And uh, as we come now to the Bible, we pray, Lord, that you would speak. And that we would listen. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, friends, go ahead and turn with me to your Bibles. We're looking this morning at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. You'll find the passage uh, also in your worship folder, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. I was um, speaking uh, down south somewhere, Yao, uh, or something like that. Sorry, that's a terrible, terrible interpretation. Uh, not interpretation. It's the fifth time I preach this, or the sixth, or the seventh, I don't know. Anyway, I was preaching down in a chapel down uh, in the south at one of these seminaries where they train students, and I was there at the chapel, and um, everything seemed to be going fine, and uh, the sermon was, I think, fine, well-received and all that, though in the middle of the sermon, my cell phone did begin to ring, um, which is, I normally turn my cell phone off when I'm preaching, but for some reason or other, I didn't that morning. No one heard it apart from me, but it was a little disturbing to me because my cell phone's um, ringtone is, I'm afraid, the James Bond theme tune. <laughs> so, um, so there I was, a little distracted momentarily. And uh, anyway, at the end of the service, you know, and then I go outside, go off to the next event, this event, lunch with the president, you know, the kind of thing, and then I'd got another lecture. And one of the students rushes up to me, wants to talk to me, you know, starts to talk very, very fast, you know, as I'm walking along. And uh, he, he, he said, so the gist of it is, uh, he's read one of my books, and it's had a big impact on his life, and he wanted to tell me about that and thank me, and of course I'm listening, you know, it's always good to know, you know, meet the one other person who's read one of my books, and, and there he was, you know, and so, um, and he told me about this, so I read it from cover, he, was, he read it at the seminary bookstore, read it from cover to cover, and then put it back on the shelf and walked out the door. This struck me as somewhat amusing at the time, it always has since, but it also, um, I think, helpfully sort of brings to bear the, uh, the challenge, one of the great challenges of our times and one of the issues that this passage actually addresses, which is, uh, how do we, in our age, where we have access to so much information, you know, you just Google it, and there it is, so we get information all the time. How, how can you and I move from information to transformation. How does what we actually know about God become something that makes a difference to how we live? Well, Paul has the answer in our passage here this morning. Let me read it for us. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Well, there's a lot there in that passage, and let me summarize it for us. This is the one kind of sentence that I would like you to remember. Everything's going to hang off this. I'm going to repeat it so that we get it at the beginning. This is what I think Paul is saying. We may have glorious power to live a new life 
through participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. We may have glorious power to live a new life through participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let me explain that and then apply it with an action plan uh, towards the end of the sermon. So first, let me explain it. I think Paul was saying this because of the context. Now, if you want to get used to studying the Bible, get good at studying the Bible, the first thing you need to get your hands around is this issue of context. So this passage comes in a discourse that Paul is writing to the Romans. It's a conversation. He indicates the importance of the context by beginning by saying, what shall we say then? In other words, he's imagining a comeback to what he has just said from his readers. He's in dialogue with his hearers, and he imagines what they will say. What shall we say then? What he has just um, been teaching is this, chapter 5, verse 20, though sin reigned, grace abounded all the more. And so Paul imagines the comeback will be this. If it's true, the more we sin, the more grace abounds, then why don't we just go out and sin so that grace can abound even more? And actually, that is, I think, still one of, if not the most common objections to the Christian message even today. For instance, Mahatma Gandhi, the great Gandhi, famously said that he was almost a Christian. I I read his autobiography from cover to cover. It's a massive, long, rambling tone. And I read it to try and get a sense of why he didn't become a Christian. And, and the bottom line, as I understood it, was he never committed his life to Christ because of this objection. If it's all grace, then we can do whatever we like. And, of course, Gandhi was a very moral man, and he didn't want people to um, live in an immoral way. And so there was for him a gap between information and transformation. So Paul's answering that objection in the context. Second reason why I think Paul's saying this uh, is because of the content of these particular verses. And that content is simply split in a very Easter kind of way between death and resurrection. That's the structure of this passage. Death, then resurrection. Now, of course, when we think about death, even at Easter, it's a tricky topic to broach. I like the story of the man who went uh, with his wife to his doctor. He was very sick, and so he went with her to see his doctor. And after a full examination, the doctor asked to see his wife alone. And this is what the doctor said to this man's wife. Your husband's condition is very serious. If you do not do exactly these things, he will surely die. Here they are. Fix him a healthy breakfast every morning. Send him off to work in a good mood. Whatever you do, make sure he's happy when he leaves. When he comes home, let him put his feet up and rest. Don't burden with any household chores. Just put it, you know, feet up, rest. No honey-do list, right? Cook him a warm, nutritious meal every evening from scratch for dinner. In short, satisfy his every whim. Well, the woman came out of the doctor's office in silence, and she and her husband drove home saying nothing until the husband asked her, so, you know, what did the doctor say? It's bad news, she replied. He says you're going to die. Yeah, death. We do everything we can to avoid it. Yet, Paul says here, we have already died. What on earth can he mean? 
He says it took place when we were baptized into Christ Jesus and that when we were buried with him by baptism into death. There's a lot there. Let me summarize it for us simply like this. Paul is saying when we become a Christian, we move from one place to another. And baptism functions as a representation of this change that takes place when someone moves from one place to another or when someone becomes a Christian. So a Christian then, according to Paul, is not someone who has made a decision about sin. A a Christian is someone who has died to sin. Note it is sin, not sins. Paul does not hear or anywhere else suggest that a Christian is immune from temptation, much less from sinning. He's far too much of a realist, Paul. He knows humans and Christians far too well to fall into any kind of perfectionistic trap. But what he's saying is when someone becomes a Christian, they move from one place, what he has called the reign of sin, to another place, what he's called the reign of grace. And this takes place, this change takes place into Christ and with Christ Jesus. So when Jesus died on the cross, what we're remembering at Easter, right? He did not only die for our sins, we, if we truly believe, in him died to sin. He is our head, our representative, and in him we die to the reign of sin. Sin no longer rules over us. Now, that does not mean that we do not still commit sins. We all do. It means that we've moved from one place to another place. We still have the sinful nature in us, but we're no longer under the rule of sin. We're now under the rule of of grace. Paul's not talking about our potential to commit sins, which still remains, but our position in relation to the rule of sin, which no longer rules over us in this new place. Look at it like this. Throughout the world today, uh, if you travel at all, you'll be aware there are different time zones, right? In America, Central Time, Eastern Time, Pacific Time, and that goes right across the world. That wasn't always the case. It's uh, is based on a set of calculations performed by a man called John Flamsteed, the first astronomer royal who made it his life work to study the heavens and come up with this way of finding our position on the planet with relation to other positions on the planet. Where we are, our position. Reminds me of the old joke of the person lost in the Irish countryside trying to find his way to Belfast. He asked the local how to get there and the local replied, ah, well, I wouldn't start from here. (laughs) Where we are. Paul was saying our location has changed. Our position has changed. In other words, the gospel is not just information. It does something. Because we're united with Christ as our head, when he died, we died to sin's rule too. Here are a couple of well-known Bible teachers in the past who agree with what I'm saying, just in case you want to check with what I'm saying is accurate. Martin Lloyd-Jones used the illustration of two fields. He said, we've moved from one field to another field. Or John Stott put it like this. He said, Paul is not arguing for the impossibility of sinning, but for its moral incongruity. So first of all, we need to understand our position, where we are. What is our position? Well, here comes then the resurrection. Look at verse 4. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Now look at this resurrection. It is just as Christ was raised. That is, we in Christ 
just as Christ was raised, we are raised too. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, as a historical fact, was witnessed by hundreds, has never been disproved. Uh, The tomb is empty. And the effects of the proclamation of his resurrection, probably the strongest argument for the historical fact of the resurrection, the effects of those early disciples preaching Jesus is risen changed the known world. And that happened without conquering armies, without coercion. Simply, they said, Jesus is risen at a time when people would have known whether he was risen or not, and that message turned the world upside down. He is risen, not a fiction of fact. And then Paul says, for those who truly give their lives to him, just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too are raised. What does he mean? Well, Paul here is not talking about our final resurrection from the dead. That certainly is also gloriously true. One day our bodies will be transformed into the likeness of his glorious body and the mortal will take on immortality. And in a flash, in the twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, we shall be raised. Yes, but here... Paul is referring to something that has taken place already. We were raised with him, just as we were dead and buried with him. What does he mean? What Paul is saying is that through Christ's death and resurrection, because of our union with him, we too have passed from the realm of death to the realm of life, to this new place where we are. Here's one of my uh, favorite illustrations of this. I'm not sure it's my very favorite, but it's one I've often used and people seem to find helpful. There's a professor who was at Cambridge University who used to look after the Christian students at that great university, and this professor would at times preach outside. He'd preach in the market square. And one time the professor was heckled as he was preaching, and the man was saying to the, uh, to the professor, you know, how can you talk about heaven? Have you ever been there? And in the best of uh, academic tones, the Cambridge professor replied, my dear fellow, I live there. We are raised. Death no more has sting. We are in a new realm, under a new Lord with a new master. People sometimes say this idea of the headship of Jesus and our union with him is an idea that ancient people understood, but in the modern world, no one can really grasp it, so let's not talk about it, which is why often preachers don't. But I'm not sure that's the case. I think we still think in the same sort of way. Here is a, for instance, say you are a sports fan and you love one of the Chicago sports teams and they happen to be doing well this month, you know, and you go down and you watch them and indeed they do do well and you come back and you go home and your family asks you how it went, what do you say? You say, we won. In Christ, we won. 
we are in a new realm under a new Lord with a new master. How did... How did this? How could that be, you say? Well, Paul tells us. He says it's by the glory of the Father. That is, I think, as the glory of God is the essence of God. So in the Bible, the glory means everything that's great about God. You know, his love, his beauty, his power, his omniscience, his omnipotence. Everything that is great about God, his glory. As is the glory of God, the essence of God, so that glory at the resurrection and us in him also raised was preeminently shone forth. We just sang, the choir did about the glory. The glory of God is not most seen in creation, actually, though, of course, the glory of God is seen in creation, but not most seen in creation. The glory of God is not most seen in Jesus' amazing miracles, though, of course, his glory is seen there. The glory of God is most seen in the ultimate sign of who Jesus is. That is in the resurrection and us as our head, him, us being raised in new life in him. And so what does that mean? It means this. A Christian, a real Christian, faint and frail, weak and wobbly. People like you and I, you know, here we are all dressed up, but we know our own lives. Nonetheless, a real Christian is an emblem of the very glory of God. There was a man who uh, decided that he would join a monastery and take a vow of silence. After every seven years, he was allowed to utter only two words. First seven years went by, and so he went to his superiors, and he said, these were his two words, cold floors. They nodded. Seven more years passed, and they called him in again. This time he said, bad food. Once more they nodded, sent him off for another seven years. Those seven years passed and he came before his superiors and this time he said, I quit. (laughs) And they replied, well, we're not surprised. You've done nothing but complain since you got here. (laughs) Oh yes, we Christians, you and I are faint and frail, weak and wobbly, even complain sometimes. But nonetheless, a real Christian is an emblem of the very glory of God. For your position, Christian, is no longer in the realm of death. It is now under the dominion of the resurrection. That means whatever is rightly true of Christ is by the reckoning of justification now true of you. You with him died to sin. And now, just as he was raised, so you may walk in newness of life. And this means that what defines you is not that you are ugly. You are not ugly. You are not fat. You are not nasty. You are not under sin. You are a Christian. You are an emblem of the very glory of God. You have been raised in him, changed in him to a whole new position, a whole new resurrection realm. Your position, your place is in Christ who is raised. And so Paul's saying, tell yourself the truth. 
Just as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, so you too may walk in newness of life. He said, what does it mean to walk in newness of life? Well, walking is often uh, used in the Bible to mean a lifestyle, a walk. And so what Paul is saying is our walk may now be in newness of life. Our lifestyle is now able to be all new. So in other words, given that this is true, given the fact of the resurrection, given the truth of the death of Christ and Him being raised from the dead and through faith, us in Him, therefore, with that glorious power, the glory of the Father, you may now walk that way in that light according to that life by that same power with the newness, the resurrection newness of life. You and I, we tell ourselves so many lies, don't we? Uh, Too old, not enough energy. Too young, not enough experience. Too middle-aged, not enough time. Reminds me of the uh, story of a classroom teacher who asked anyone who thought they were silly, who, who, who wasn't thinking good things about themselves, anyone who thought they were silly to stand up, no one stood up. If, you think you're, if you're thinking bad about yourself, just, you, know, you think you're silly, just stand up, still no one stood up. Finally, one little boy stood up. Really, the teacher said, you, you think badly about yourself, you think you're silly, you think you're no good. No, miss, I don't think any of that, but I just didn't want to leave you standing up there all on your own. Paul is saying that the first step in bridging the gap between information and transformation is realizing where we are. We have died with Christ. Baptism is the initiation rite that celebrates this massive change. We are dead to sin. Not that we no longer commit sins, but that we no longer submit to sin. We cannot live in it anymore. We have been moved by faith in Jesus Christ. He died for our sins, and we in Him died to sin. Our lifestyle now is under a new master. Not sin, but grace. This reign of grace, which has triumphant power, actually does something. (laughs) Gradually will make us more like Jesus. Paul wants us to realize this new position. We have died in him. That's why we don't just sin that grace may abound, because grace is not an idea. It is a power. It does something. It's moved us from one realm to another. This is our new status, dead to sin, alive in Christ. He was raised from the dead, and just as he was raised, so now in him we too may walk in newness of life. That's the truth. And then here comes the lie. It doesn't matter what he does. He will never amount to anything spoke in 1895 by the teacher of one, Albert Einstein. He seemed to turn out okay. 
I've had people speak all sorts of lies to me. I don't want to mention them again to give voice to them, but I can tell you I have had one way or another people tell me that I am of no good and will never do anything. But you know, the worst lies I hear are the ones in my own head, spoken by myself or whispered by some malevolent power. We all hear them. You were never loved. No one respects you. What you're doing is pointless. You can never change. It's too late for you now, this all, all this Christian stuff. And then here comes the truth. We have died with Christ. And just as Christ was raised, so we may walk in newness of life. This is where we are. This is the position, Christian. You are united to Christ. You are in him. You are under new master. One great Christian teacher put it like this. He said, tell yourself this truth. What matters is not what I feel is true about myself at any moment, but what I know is true about God at every moment. The reign of sin is defeated. It is killed. And you are come back to life in Christ who was raised from the dead by his glorious power. And so you now may, you may have the glory of the Father invested in Christ's resurrection. And in the same way, you can walk in newness of life. And so I think Paul is saying, we may have glorious power to live a new life through participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now here's the action plan. I said there was going to be one, and here it is at the end of the sermon, summarized by the word plan. First, would you pray? In order to participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you need first to seek Him in prayer and trust and turn from your sins and have Him as your Lord and Master. Would you do that? Would you pray? Seek Him passionately. Wait for Him patiently. You need to pray. Second, would you learn? One of the great dangers of the information age in which we live is we all think we know more than we do. A new study from Yale University shows that people today wildly overestimate what they know because they can search for it online so easily. (laughs) To participate more with Christ, we need to learn. We need to learn by reading the Bible each day. We need to learn by reading Christian books. We have a, a library to help you with finding good Christian books. We need to learn from each other in fellowship and small groups. We need to learn about the historical reliability of the Bible, answers to other questions that you may have that are addressed by those papers we have at the back of the church. To participate with Christ, you need to learn more about Christ. Third, would you act? 
Christian life is not only praying and studying, it's also doing. As a church, we have a mission to grow. As a church of gospel excellence to change the world, we are on mission from Christ to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, the corners of our own hearts, and the end of our street in our neighborhood. There are so many ways to serve in children's ministries and the resale stores that we have to help with the outreach community center, with the disability ministry, and many, many other ways to have an impact for Christ in the world today. Participating with Christ requires participating in the body of Christ. Come and join in with His mission. Act forth now. P pray, L learn, A act forth now. What step could you take in the next 24 hours to participate more fully in Jesus Christ and his mission in this world today? Four. We may have glorious power to live a new life through participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who need to take a first step of participating. That by your Spirit, you would seek and win the lost. And Lord, I pray for all of us here this morning who need to take a next step in participating. That you would help us in the next 24 hours to take that step forward. In the name of Jesus, amen.